Welcome to the FDD Events Podcast. I'm Cliff Mate, founder and president of FDD. I'm pleased to share with you the following conversation. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss out on future FDD events. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, Senior Vice President for Research at FDD, and welcome back to the FDD Morning Brief. The mood is getting contentious out there. It's a battle of narratives, but it's no longer about who has the facts on their side. There's intimidation, there are threats, there are mobs, and it feels like things are slowly spinning out of control. And I'm just talking about America here. In the Middle East, it's a whole different reality, and that's what we analyze here. So let's dive into the FDD Morning Brief. This morning, I'll be joined by Trey Yinks, the intrepid war reporter from Fox News, who's done incredible work in Gaza. But before we speak to Trey, let's take a quick look at what's happening around the region. The fighting continues in Gaza. Israel has made additional progress in Khan Yunus, Jabalia, and other population centers. There's now talk about flooding the Hamas commando tunnels. For Israel, this would mean dropping fewer bombs. For the United States, this would mean less death and destruction in Gaza, which U.S. officials have urged. And for Gazans, it would probably mean fewer traumatic explosions. But let's not forget, a massive amount of seawater beneath the buildings of Gaza could erode the foundations of buildings. It could also impact the fresh water that Gazans need to drink. In other words, there could be unintended consequences. We'll watch this one carefully. A, mass a massive rocket volley was fired yesterday into the Tel Aviv Gushdan region, and several managed to squeeze past the Iron Dome air defense system. Israelis I spoke to yesterday conveyed a sense of frustration that after two months of fighting, Hamas still has the ability to fire rockets at that distance and in those numbers. Israel continues to fight for the lives of remaining hostages in Gaza. The IDF announced yesterday that one of the missing Israelis from 10-7 is confirmed to be in Hamas custody. That brings the number of hostages up to 138. Israel also announced that Hamas is reluctant to release the remaining women in custody for fear of what they might say about the way they were treated while in the Gaza Strip. It is just really difficult to imagine the hell that these women have endured. Israeli health authorities further stated that the hostages released last week were actually sedated with tranquilizers. This was to ensure that they appeared calm for the cameras as the transfer took place. We'll learn more about the treatment of hostages in the days and weeks to come. Finally, Israel is investing, investigating an airstrike that killed a soldier from the Lebanese armed forces. The LAF is not the enemy in Lebanon, but if the Lebanese army can't disarm Hezbollah, it should probably just send its soldiers home. They're only putting themselves in the line of fire. Okay, those are the quick headlines. Here are your top three big stories to watch today. Headline one, the debate about Hamas and Gaza's hospitals may make more news. The Israelis announced yesterday that they arrested 21 different people from the medical field in Gaza. This includes doctors and administrators from the Shifa Hospital. It includes Rantisi Hospital and the Indonesian Hospital. All of these facilities are in northern Gaza. You can recall that the head administrator of Shifa was actually taken to Israel for questioning just before the ceasefire, shortly after the Israelis uncovered a labyrinth of commando tunnels beneath the hospital. So what's next? It's unclear how many more hospitals have been wielded for military purposes in central and southern Gaza, where the IDF is operating. But we do know that every time Israel takes action against Hamas military bases that are embedded in civilian buildings, Hamas and its supporters respond with fury. We are likely also to hear words of warning from the U.S., based on recent statements. 
But will that derail the IDF from achieving its objective of dismantling Hamas military infrastructure? Stay tuned. Headline two, fighting continues in the West Bank, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, and Yemen. Here's what we know. There are regular clashes every night in the West Bank. That includes arrests and assassinations of terrorists. Hezbollah continues to fire at Israel and Israel continues to fire back. Shiite militias continue to attack American forces in Iraq and Syria. And Israel continues to strike at, at Iranian targets in Syria as well. Meanwhile, the Houthis are still targeting American ships out of Yemen, not to mention international vessels on the Red Sea. So what does this all mean? With the focus so squarely placed on the fighting in Gaza, it's easy to forget that this is a regional war. It's even easier to forget that every one of those armed groups taking shots at Israel and the United States is an Iran-backed terrorist group. And remarkably, Iran has yet to pay a price, not through new sanctions, not through diplomatic isolation, and certainly not through military means. This is what Svibar L argued yesterday in the pages of Haaretz, Israel's left-leaning newspaper of record. It was also the subject of an op-ed by Daniel DePetris of the Chicago Tribune. But it's amazing how this is simply not being discussed worldwide. The Middle East has descended into a regional war and the culprit has yet to pay a price. Will it? We'll find out. And finally, headline three, someone or perhaps several people may have shorted the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange just before the October 7th massacre. Here's what we know. The news first broke in the Israeli press, but it was quickly picked up here in the United States. The facts are still fuzzy. More research is still needed, but it appears that, it, that there was a spike in short sale positions on the Israeli ETF just before the worst terrorist attack in Israeli history. Someone or some people appear to have made a lot of money. So now what? Israeli authorities are looking into this. It's safe to say that American officials will take a good look as well. I've worked my fair share of terrorism finance cases in the past. This one would be a doozy. There are a lot of suspects here. I won't announce my guess for who done it, but I will be watching this one very closely. And FDD may have some additional news to share about this soon. I'm now pleased to welcome Trey Yankst. Trey is a reporter with Fox News. He seems to always be wearing a helmet and a flak jacket, so you may not recognize him here on this platform, but he's a journalistic force of nature on the battlefield and an all-around good guy. Trey, welcome. Thank you, Jonathan. Well, let me ask you, Trey, um, I've watched you for some time now, and um, you looks like you, you wake up every day and you run into the line of fire. You throw yourself into the battlefield. How is it that you came into this business in the first place and, and what keeps you going every day? First of all, thanks for having me. I started doing this kind of work about 10 years ago, and one of the first wars that I covered when I was 20 years old was the 2014 war between Israel and Gaza, known as Sukkotan. I had a backpack and a DSLR camera, and I went into the Gaza Strip and reported on my own. And so this is an experience for me that is familiar, but it's also something that I've been working at for the past decade, trying to develop sources, not just in Israel with the military and the government, but also inside Gaza with Hamas and Islamic Jihad, civilians, doctors, people who can help us understand what the full story is. So I'd say I'm, I'm motivated by the fact that I think I'm uniquely placed being based in the Middle East for Fox out of our Jerusalem Bureau, having covered this conflict for so many years and been able to develop sources and a level of trust on both sides of the border that I think allows us 
to cover this story in a way that we can bring the news to our viewers and let them decide based on the facts that we provide. Well, I think that's coming through loud and clear. Um, let me ask you, uh, the access that you get inside Gaza, it's pretty rare. Um, do you get a sense that uh, Hamas and Islamic Jihad and, and other actors, non-state actors, I mean, do they respect the rules as it relates to journalists covering, covering these stories? It's a great question. And I think October 7th changed everything. Uh, initially, we could go into Gaza in years prior and meet with, with top officials, meet with militants, and, and get a sense of what their thoughts were on the current conflict, the developing war at that time. But October 7th changed that. And so while we are still in touch with Hamas and Islamic Jihad, I'm not sure about the level of safety or just personal decision that I would make about reporting without any sort of military support as part of an embed inside Gaza. Now, with that said, there are dozens, if not hundreds of journalists, myself included, waiting to get into Gaza without the military. We understand the risks. And right now we're not able to enter, but there is a story there and an angle that we need to, to cover. And, and right now we simply need to do that from afar with the sources we've developed and the video that we are getting out of the strip. And so in terms of the relations with Hamas and Islamic Jihad, traditionally, I've been always very upfront with the leadership and, and explained early on, if you want to fire rockets at civilians and kill innocent people, we will report that. If you want to cut a peace deal with Israel, we're going to report that too. And so that's basically how we've developed this level of trust, having these leaders and, and these people understand that we are going to report based on how they conduct themselves. And that's what we've done. Who would you say, by the way, is uh, maybe the most senior Hamas guy or Islamic Jihad guy that you've met? Who who would you say is probably the the sort of most notorious or most famous uh, of uh, of the militant groups that you've met with? Uh, Yahya Sinwar. Wow. I, when, in, when was that? In 2019 at an event inside Gaza City. He, there's actually a, a very infamous picture of him holding a child with a weapon on, on a stage. And we were at this event. And afterwards, I tried to pull him aside for an interview and his bodyguards got in the way. But that was was one moment. Um, I've also uh, a, a man that you'll know and, and are familiar with that very few people, probably less people have met than Sinwar himself, is Abu Abaida, the spokesman for Hamas, who notoriously stays underground. I, I met him at a military parade in 2019 in Han Yunus and actually briefly interviewed him. Wow. Incredible, incredible access. What would you say was, uh, in, in this round of conflict, what would you say has been your most, the diciest moment for you and your team? There've been a lot. Um, we were in Southern Israel as the attack was unfolding on October 7th. We saw so many people die in front of us, uh, soldiers, uh, civilians that were taken to this triage point where we ultimately stopped and reported for those early days. Uh, it was very difficult in the early days of this conflict. It, it was very dangerous. You didn't know where Hamas was. And in many cases, they were, were in the next tree line over. We were very, very close in the early days, just north of Yadamur the High that sits uh, over the northern border between Gaza and Israel. Uh, and then after that, it, often reporting under rocket and mortar fire, uh, especially in those early barrages where there were thousands of rockets and mortars fired into, into southern Israel. And... I would say inside Gaza has also been quite dicey. I've been inside three separate times embedded with the Israeli military. 
And the first time I entered, it was during the daytime and there was a firefight between Hamas and those Israeli forces that were operating at the time, just south of Gaza City. I've since returned and uh, entered with Israeli forces less than 24 hours after they raided Shifa Hospital in Gaza City and also entered during the day into Gaza City with the Israelis. So it, it's been uh, quite an experience to do that, but also a level of danger as these firefights continue. Well, that, that that's made perfectly clear watching some of the footage uh, of you on Fox. Um, I want to ask you just for a minute here about Shifa Hospital. As we all know, that was a serious uh, kind of bone of contention. It, it really uh, became a, a national debate of whether Israel should be operating in and around hospitals. And Hamas supporters were out there claiming that the Israelis were deliberately trying to uh, stop hospital operations and carry out uh, you know war crimes. You ultimately went underground and you saw the tunnels and, and uh, the underground infrastructure at Shifa. Tell us a little bit about that. And what were your big takeaways? Yeah, so we've been following this particular part of the story since the beginning. And I'd been to Shifa Hospital many times before, actually. And in 2014, I met with Hamas on the compound of Shifa Hospital. And so I wasn't surprised when the Israelis said that there was infrastructure there. I'd never been into the tunnels at that time or, or uh, seen any sort of weapons at the facility at that time, but there were officials there. Now, with that said, since this conflict has started with the massacre of so many innocent people on October 7th, as you've noted, this was, was such a focus for the entire world. And it, it was a spectrum, right? When we look at the information that was presented, you have a lot of people that, that said there was no military activity at all at, at Shifa Hospital, and there were no weapons, no tunnels, nothing. And then the Israelis came out on the other side of, of the spectrum with this graphic that was computer generated that showed a command center underneath Shifa Hospital with many separate layers. What we ended up seeing when we entered Shifa Hospital two separate times was something in between. Uh, the first time that I entered, like I said, less than 24 hours after, the Israelis hadn't yet gone through the entire facility. They didn't dig underneath it. And so they showed us some weapons that were in the radiology department of the hospital. And this was in the middle of the night. And so we actually couldn't see anything outside of where the Israelis took us that night. I then returned about a week later with the Israelis after they had uncovered more weapons on the compound during the daytime. And you could see quite a bit more. Well, when we got to the hospital this time, very close to where we initially entered, you could see a tunnel shaft that they uncovered and then as we went closer to the hospital itself, the Israelis had dug up a, a tunnel that we ultimately entered underneath the hospital complex. And we walked through this tunnel network that had not just tunnels, but also facilities for people to stay there for, for a, a period of time. There, were, there was a toilet, there was a sink, there were rooms that ha had, had tile on the floor. It wasn't just dirt tunnels. And so this wasn't the command center. The Israelis said they, they would ultimately find, but it also wasn't nothing. It's it significant. And these were not tunnels that, uh, that were there as, as part of a, a place to store medicine. These were tunnels that matched exactly the design of other Hamas tunnels that had been uncovered, that the Israelis uncovered in the past when they were trying to, to dig into Israel. And so this was a significant thing to see up close. And I felt it was important for us to go there in person with our cameras to capture this because ultimately there will be people that say that there were no tunnels and, and there were indeed tunnels and we entered those tunnels with the military. We're hearing a lot of talk right now about how Israel might flood the tunnels with 
seawater. What have you heard about that? What do you think the impact will be? Do you think that it would be effective? You've been in these, you've seen them. Uh, do you think seawater would bring them down? I think it would be effective to an extent, but there are a, a number of things, as you've noted, that, that have to be considered in all of this. The first thing that comes to mind is, is where the hostages are being held. Initially, the groups inside Gaza, including Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and, and even some of the smaller organizations, PFLP and, and others, said hostages were in the tunnels. And we have heard from some of the people that, that have been freed as part of that ceasefire, the week-long ceasefire, that they, they were, in many cases, held in tunnels. So that is something to consider. We don't know exactly where the, the other hostages, nearly 140, are, are being held in Gaza. So if they're in the tunnel system, they have to take that into consideration. The other two things, as you noted, has to do with the freshwater infrastructure inside Gaza and also broadly the civilian infrastructure. Flooding the tunnel network because it is so extensive uh, could have consequences that would ultimately affect the humanitarian situation inside Gaza. And so we saw the report in the Wall Street Journal. It's certainly being considered. We've actually been able to see uh, water pumps from the Gaza border where we've been reporting. Uh, we've not seen them in use, but they have this infrastructure there and they're preparing if the decision is made to flood the tunnels. All right, we'll be watching that closely. Thank you, Trey Yanks, for joining us today. Thank you. Okay, here's some of the other stories that FTD is tracking today. Uh, first, uh, the regime in Iran jailed a hip-hop artist this week. Tehran is clamping down on its domestic opposition yet again, hoping the world is distracted with the war. My FD colleagues at the Iran program, including Tzvi Khan, are keeping a close eye on this. They continue to stress that the West must provide maximum support for the people of Iran. Remember, folks, it's not Iran that's the problem. It's the current regime in Iran that's the problem. Number two, the pro-Erdogan government newspaper Sabah published multiple hit pieces this week slandering FTD and FTD's Sinan Jidi. Clearly, we've struck a nerve in Ankara. Sinan's recent piece in the National Interest shines a light on Turkish Prime Minister Recep Tayyip Erdogan's anti-Israel rhetoric. The premier regularly hammers the Jewish state, but he does this to deflect intense criticism over his own failed domestic policies, even as he quietly maintains strong econo economic ties with Israel. And finally, President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine unexpectedly canceled his plans to address the U.S. Congress. As lawmakers work toward a, com a compromise spending package, Zelensky was slated to make the case for why Ukraine aid is vital to American interests. My colleague John Hardy, a rising star analyst at FTD, is following the Ukraine war. His most recent piece looks at how Ukrainian troops are digging into defensive positions ahead of winter. Read that story and more on FTD's Long War Journal. And read all of this terrific work on our website, FTD.org. Follow our work on X at FTD. And please make your tax-deductible contribution at ftd.org slash invest. Join us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for more FTD morning briefs. Our next guest will be Dalia Ziada, the brave Egyptian researcher who stoked the ire of Islamist radicals in Egypt after October 7th. You're definitely going to want to hear this story. Until then, thank you for tuning in. I'm Jonathan Shanzer, signing off for FTD. Music.